Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode number eight. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to thank those of you who've contacted me to tell me about your experience listening to the show. It makes me feel great that not only are people listening along with each episode, but that you're finding our guests insightful and helpful in your own personal and professional development. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on LinkedIn or email me directly, david at teams.guru. That's teams with an S dot guru. I'd love to hear from you. Today's episode is a timely one. Here in Australia, we've just found ourselves with a brand new Prime Minister, our fifth in five years. It's been a fascinating few years in Australian politics. Powerful personalities, a revolving door of leadership. It's been nasty, divisive, some might even say hyperpartisan. And whatever the changes have meant to you, we all have one thing in common. It's been incredibly interesting to watch. And it got me thinking, who's leading this country? Who's leading the democratic process? Is it the media, the voting public, or indeed the politicians that we elect? Today's guest will answer all those questions and more. Dr. Stephen Harrington is the perfect person to chat with about all things politics, media, and the future of the democratic landscape. He has a PhD in philosophy. He's a senior lecturer in journalism, media, and communication at the Queensland University of Technology. He's the author of a book called Australian TV News, New Forums, Functions, and Futures. He has an incredible ability to make the weighty and often bland issue of political discourse relevant and thought-provoking. I know from my hosting service that about 70% of our listeners are from Australia. But for those of you from outside Oz, the other 30%, this episode is as much for you as anyone. This is not the story of Australia's recent political theatre. This is the story of the changing relationship between the political class, the voting public, and the media that connects them. Dr. Stephen Harrington, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. It's a pleasure. Stephen, I have an itch that needs to be scratched. We're experiencing, we've watched and we're still experiencing one of the most tumultuous times in Australian politics. And I just need someone to help me make sense of that. Uh, A lot of experienced observers call this the most damaging, divisive, partisan era of Australian politics since the the Whitlam dismissal back in 1975. You're a PhD of philosophy. What do you see in this era of politics that might pass the rest of us by? That's a fantastic question. There's probably about three things in there. I would would start out by saying that I think that a lot of times when we're looking at politics and how things, what was happening in politics, we often will look at a previous time and say, well, weren't things better back then? wasn't, Wasn't it great back in, you know, People might say the 1960s, the 1970s. People do this all the time. I think one of the things is that people can look at today and say, well, we're having this revolving door of, of political leaders. Um, no one's, I mean, I, I heard the term uh, that the electorate is ungovernable was, was, was bandied about um, earlier this year when it came to the Queensland state election. You know, that we had Campbell Newman who had this incredible majority 
who within you know, three years essentially had, had lost it entirely. We can look at that, I think, and say, well, it's different to the past and therefore it must be worse. But the problem is, I think, in doing that is it doesn't take into account a whole bunch of different factors. And we can kind of apply two different lenses to it. Like I said, we can say, well, this is evidence of people, for example, voters being really fickle. And it's because, um, you know, people didn't like, you know, how Tony Abbott presented himself or that he ate onions or whatever it might be. I have a natural tendency, I suppose, to to be more positive about things generally. But I think that the reason why there's this there's such a kind of tumultuous period in, in, in politics is actually because people are better informed than they ever have been. I think that's that's the first thing is because people are aware when a political leader says something and does something that is problematic, that they don't like, that may conflict with um, their stated ideology. It might conflict with promises that have been made, for example, in an election period. Those things are actually jumped on much, much faster than they ever have been before. It's often was the case that, um, you know, again, people like to look at the past and say, well, wasn't it so much better? You know, didn't journalists do a much better job in the 1960s, 1970s, um, you know, around Watergate? And that's proof that, you know, journalism used to be better than it was. But actually, if you look back at that kind of period, journalists were just as kind of had just as cosy a relationship with politicians back then, if not more so. Um, you know, the famous example that is used and I like using all the time is this back in, in JFK's era, like the press corps knew that he was a philanderer and essentially didn't say anything about it because they thought, well, you know, that's, that's his kind of private life. You go back to FDR and, again, the, the press knew that he had to get around in a wheelchair and, and used, needed leg braces to stand up. Um, but that sort of thing actually wasn't even known to the American public. Today, even, even the smallest little thing that happens in politics is known immediately to um, the public and is circulated and commented upon and things like that. And I actually think that that is a good thing. People know what's going on. People are able to respond almost immediately. And... Because the public is so heavily polled all the time, politicians are really responsive to that. And they think, uh-oh, you know, we're, we're at risk of losing the next election, so we better quickly get someone else in who's going to be more popular with the public. That was a long answer that sort of almost only barely answered the question that you asked, but um, that's kind of my spin on things anyway. On the night that uh, Malcolm Turnbull became our fifth Prime Minister in five years, I read a tweet that really got me thinking. iPhone, social media... No full terms. Coincidence. So Twitter came out in mid-2006. Kevin Rudd was elected in 2007, less than a year after Twitter came on the scene. Since then, we've had no Prime Minister serve a full term. Is that a coincidence? Is that, I mean, that's obviously just part of the 24-hour news cycle, our ubiquitous access to information. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of, um, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, the, this, the political situation that we have now is not as a result of Twitter, for example. It's not as, as a, a result of the iPhone. But this is kind of a confluence of factors that, yeah, as I said, I said before, you know, I think that you have much kind of greater attention and scrutiny and coverage of politics. I mean, we, we have this, you know, really crazy idea that for some reason people today don't know much about politics. Actually, we know way more because there's so much more news and discussion of, of, you know, political news than there ever has been before. Um, and I think that's part of it, you know, the, the fact that I can, you know, I personally get most of my news from social media. And, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's, that's out of the ordinary these days. If, some, you know, if, if, for example, 
there is a press conference where Malcolm Turnbull declares that he's interested in you know going for the leadership of the party and therefore the prime ministership. We know about that immediately. We get, as I said, the, these these commentaries that are produced straight away and these these insightful analyses, not just from you know what used to be a very finite number of channels, but the the broader expanse of um, the digital digital sphere as well. Now, I know that quite a bit of your study and your academic work, indeed a book that you've written, has focused heavily on the role that the media plays in our democratic process. What do you think is the biggest change that's taken place within our democratic process as a result of the 24-hour news cycle, Mm -hmm. um, our access at the touch of a button to to information? How has that changed the scene? Is there a, a good and a bad side? Is it only bad? Is it only good? Oh, I think a lot of commentators are prone to saying everything is good or everything is bad. I, as, I again, I'm I'm always inclined to be positive about these things, and I'm certainly not suggesting that there aren't negative negative consequences. You know, sometimes I I, I am, am absolutely inclined to agree that we we will sometimes have a kind of a lack of quality, sort of slow discussions in a way that um, it's, it's often a little bit sort of too fast and too knee jerk. But I think that. If there's been one significant change, let's say just in the last 10 years, I think that there is the the number of channels where one can get political news from has massively increased. You know, and that's that's partly, well, it's in large part because of the internet. You know, we have those established media players like, let's say, The Australian is now, it has to compete with The Guardian, which, you know, The Guardian Australia, which... I mean, was it's a well-established itself is a well-established newspaper, but you know, it didn't even exist in the Australian market only a few years ago, and now that's you know very very well read. We have, as we were saying, you know, we have social media outlets which do an awful lot of you know, sort of discussion of the news. We have people who are blogging or writing, um, you know, really insightful pieces, and and very often they they make the jump to the mainstream media as well. But I think that we also have a much greater diversity in the styles of, of news as well. So we have, you know, the straight-laced factual reporting that we've always had, but we also have a whole bunch of people who maybe maybe not even considered journalists who are, I think, making quite a substantial contribution to the, what we would call, what, what academics like to call the public sphere or the political public sphere, which you can loosely define as sort of the, the public conversation that we have about politics. We have... Certainly my own research has looked a lot at, for example, satire and the role that satirists and comedians actually play now in how people think about politics. Um, There are absolutely no shortage of examples. Um, One, I think, fantastic example, even within Australia, has been, well, there's in fact been a whole number of uh, satirical news, news uh, channels that have arisen. You were talking before about the the night of um, Malcolm Turnbull's challenge to Tony Abbott. One of my favourite headlines from that entire day was one that was a satirical headline and it said, Julia Gillard taken to hospital having overdosed on schadenfreude. Um, so, you know, another one, a, a great one was from an um, online outlet called The Shovel, which was talking about Tony Abbott was spotted standing by Lake Burley Griffin challenging random passers-by to a boat-stopping contest. You know, just sometimes it's those kind of funny on-point headlines which sometimes in some some cases not only tell us more about what's really going on, but 
people lo- would would much prefer to engage with those things because they're fun and they're funny and, and who wouldn't prefer something fun and interesting as compared to you know the seven thirty report with Lee Sales. So there's certainly been an an enriching of the Australian media landscape over a, quite a long period now. It's not just with the internet. It's it's about things like the the panel, the John Stewart lookalike shows that we've tried mm. here in Australia, the Chasers War and everything. There are so many different ways to take in your news now. Has it enriched the conversation though? Yes, I think it has. I mean, I I think and and I made this uh, point in my book when I was we have this narrative of. And, and we hear it a lot. Again, academics like to, to churn over these these debates constantly about journalism being in crisis. And we're always hearing about journalism being in crisis. And I think that, that it is true that journalism is in crisis if you define it as people who have a full-time job working in a newspaper as reporters. Like if that is what journalism is, then of course it's in crisis because newspapers are way less profitable than they ever have been. And and again, this is this feeds into this narrative of decline that we always talk about. But actually, if you if you define first of all, you know, journalism much more broadly as people who make a contribution to the public sphere, people who are involved in what we would you could sort of loosely call fact based reporting or, or news coverage. There are there are actually far more journalists now probably than there ever have been. And I think it's much better to have diversity in um, the new styles. And there's, there's, there's actually two reasons for that, which I'll explain. I think the first reason why we should be really happy about the diversity of news formats is that there are more opportunities for... If, if you don't necessarily like watching this, you know, this, the 6 o'clock news or insiders on a, you know, a Sunday morning on the ABC or you know, the hard-hitting current affairs show that there are alternatives now. It, and I think that's good because particularly for young people, the way in which news is presented is incredibly boring. It doesn't, it doesn't actually speak in their language very, very often. If you, if you turn on television news, not just in Australia, but anywhere in the world, it's overwhelmingly dominated by white males, middle-aged in wearing suits and ties, you know, sitting at a desk, speaking this, this language that doesn't really match. Very what, stale. Yeah, extremely stale. And, and the thing is that journalism schools everywhere in the world, I mean, and this is changing a bit, and I think that's, that's quite positive, but they're all taught to speak in the same kind of way, have the same sort of authoritative voice, and that doesn't necessarily connect with everyone. The other reason why I think it's really good that we have all this diversity in news at the moment is that politicians craft so much of their strategy around how do I best get this message out in a traditional journalistic format. So that's how we have the, the, we've seen the rise of the soundbite sort of culture and politicians speaking in the five to ten, usually five second soundbites. Um, and there's no, there's no shortage of great examples of that. You know, I love showing a clip. Um, I love showing some of my students a clip of Ed Miliband in an interview repeating the same phrase, literally the same phrase over and over, no matter, it didn't matter what question he was asked. He just repeated the same phrase over and over when he was asked by this by a journalist. Because he knows very few people are actually listening to the speech. Most people yeah, yeah. will just get a five-second soundbite. And know, he wants that to be the soundbite. He's tailoring his message because he knows, all right, this is, you know, he and his media managers have decided this is the, the clip that we want in tonight's news. Therefore, and we know that this is how journalism works. It, we need, you know, the way in which it's edited for television news usually requires a five to ten second soundbite. Here is the cluster of words that we want out in tonight's news. Therefore, just whatever you do, just to say that, right? But the thing is, politicians can only do that when, and it, that's only really successful when journalists operate in a, a singular kind of way. In, in, when journalism is homogenous, then it's really quite easy to sort of tell your strategy 
to suit that. But when you actually have diversity, and this is a really a, a crucial argument, as I said, that I made uh, in my book a couple of years ago, that when you have that, that greater diversity, the better the chance is that that strategy is going to get scrutinised. There was, and you, you mentioned the chaser, you know, in the lead up to the 2007 uh, federal election, there was this famous example where Peter Garrett, he made this offhand joke, whether it was a joke or not, I'm not sure, but he made a joke to Steve Price in a Qantas lounge and he said, don't worry, Steve, you know, when we're elected, when we get elected, we're going to just change all our policies anyway. And Steve Price thought, no, nah, that's it. I've, I've, I've discovered that, the, you know, the Labor Party's full of it. It's not real. But he, it was Steve Price as a man who would want to hear that. Oh, exactly. Steve right, Price would. Yeah, yeah. Right, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that, that this is, yeah, some, you know, some, some big insight. And the way in which Peter Garrett, Peter Garrett then called a press conference and he just, he literally used the same phrase 10 times. He said, I had a short jocular conversation with Steve Price and that's all I think that it was. You know, basically something along those lines. And you can be absolutely sure that in the news that night, the phrase, I had a short jocular conversation with Steve Price was what appeared and that was what they decided he, he would say to diffuse the, the, the controversy. But then the chasers war and everything uh, were, were, were covering that um, at the time. And then they made fun of the number of times that he used the word jocular. And so that suddenly gives you this completely different insight into the fact that he was not just, he, he was not in that, at that press conference acting in a natural sort of way he was operating strategically and you can you can by presenting it in that way you can see that he's got a bunch of spin doctors behind the scenes who are telling him what to do and i think that's a really positive thing it's harder for politicians to um, play the sort of what we, what again what we call the mediatization game when the when the media is is more diverse than it used to be and I, I was about to, to chime in and, and make that point. So in a lot of ways, that strategy of repeating the same line over and over, because you know that's what will get picked up in the five or seven second grab on the news that night is, is out of date because such a relatively few, small number of people are using the six o'clock news as their major source of news. So why are our politicians lagging so far behind in that strategy? We've just watched a prime minister be toppled who spent two years in the top job? Well, the, I mean, the irony, I was going to say that the irony is, of course, that, you know, in, in the, the speech that Tony Abbott made as, as he was departing the, was the, the top speech? job, he, but, but yeah, it was, it was a good speech. But I think that was interesting. He said, you know, we've got this febrile media culture, which, you know, rewards treachery and all this stuff. But the, the irony was he was the king of the three word slogan, right? You know, and, and, and that's quite a fair thing to say that you know he in the in the lead up to the 2013 election it was fascinating he every opportunity he got he said we're going to stop the boats we're going to you know axe the tax we're going to do the, you know like he, he could just he was probably better than anyone of just kind of collapsing everything down into these very um simplistic slogans yeah well that brings me to my next question the ability to argue is an integral part of the pursuit of wisdom the true argument is asking questions and seeking answers. Do we have that ability as a nation? Does our political class have that ability or the media or we as the public? Or are we trapped in a, a rhetorical quagmire? Oh, that's a good one. I think that we absolutely have the capacity for a sustained and intellectual conversation around politics in Australia. And I mean, it was interesting to note, again, just to kind of be, be commenting again on, on current events, you know, the Malcolm Turnbull said, you know, we need to have a conversation with the, the Australian public, not a, um, you know, not just sort of yell at them or, or just give them prepackaged slogans. 
And it, it, funnily enough, you know, straight it was a away. pointed comment, isn't it? It, it was. And, and, you know, he he's almost straight away was then criticised for waffling on too much um, in that interview. You know, but he did it live and, and he was able to provide a, an, an intellectual and coherent argument for this is, you know, this is the policies we want. You know, these are the things that we want to do as a government. And you, you look at the way in which the... the just the national mood around the federal government has changed massively. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I think that, you know, it is partly about personality, but it's about treating people as, you know, the, the general ordinary voter as a smart person who's able to understand a coherent argument. I think that's, that's really crucial. But if you look at the most successful new forms of political, again, for, for, for lack of a better word, news, in, across the world, they are actually really in depth, sophisticated, and again, like they, they treat their audience um, with respect. A great example, you know, you talked talked before about the the John Stewart, well, John Stewart and the people who've kind of replicated his his shtick here in Australia and elsewhere. But I think one of my absolute favourites of all of those is um, John Oliver. You know, and he does these long segments which are incredibly funny. So you know, they're they're engaging for that reason to start with. But these are long, you know, twenty minute segments talking about difficult, what people would often see to be as really boring issues. Like the, the famous one was net neutrality in, in America, where the assumption was always, well, the American public just doesn't care about net neutrality. There's, you know, you can do whatever you want in that sort of space because people aren't going to notice for one, people aren't going to care. Whereas then if you, if you actually look at what he did, the way he covered it was by saying, yes, it's boring, but it's actually really, it has you know, these significant consequences. And at the time, the FCC, um, the Federal Communications Commission, who was responsible for uh, net neutrality in, in the States, was inviting for public submissions on that particular topic. And, and they were asking the public to have their say. Almost no one had made a submission. But as soon as John Oliver did that and said, actually, here is why it's important. Yeah, this, is, this is, yeah, it's, it's complicated and it's hard, but it is actually going to really affect you directly. They... Uh, on on the show that they they published the the place where people could submit their comments to the FCC website, it actually crashed the server because there were so many people immediately jumping on board to do that. And later on, when there was essentially the the legislation which was going to break net neutrality from a um, a policy perspective was abandoned, a lot of people said that was pretty much thanks to that show. So and and there's there's no shortage of them. I and mean, podcasts, right? You know, we're doing one right now. I think we have. The really successful podcasts are those ones where we have a long, you know, people have long, intelligent conversations um, with people who have something to say. And I think that, that the success of those even is just an example that the it's it's easy from a kind of a ratings perspective very often to treat people and the public as though they're stupid and, and, and it falls into this narrative of, oh, people are dumb now, so we've got to treat them as though they're dumb. Actually, if you treat people as though they're smart and if you... And this goes for politicians. If you're able to make a convincing argument, that will still win out, no matter what the the media culture is like. If if you can, as I said, yeah, treat people with respect, that that will usually work out. I they're very powerful, John Oliver and um, John Stewart and and John Oliver. Yeah, well, I mean, John Stewart's retired now, yeah. but um, you know, in in his place, uh, Trevor Noah. We it's yet to we're yet to find out how he'll go, but um, yeah, they're incredibly powerful. And these are not you know again, these are comedians who once upon a time never had any real place in the political dialogue, but who are now central figures in how people, how American citizens in particular, think about politics. And I think that's really exciting. I heard it once said um, or asked, 
is John Stewart America's funniest smart guy or smartest funny man? Mm. And that's a really good way to put yeah, it because he did penetrate so deeply into the national conversation. Yeah, and, and there was all these endless debates about, you know, is John Stewart a journalist? And he would always deflect that question by saying, well, I'm a comedian first. But he, he did acknowledge that, yeah, of course people um, watch his show to, to be informed about politics. But he would actually say very often that that was a indication of how poorly citizens were served elsewhere in the media that you know there was too much of what passes for political discourse in the states is people yelling at each other and this really sort of partisan bickering that you tend to see this sort of manufactured debate that that goes on particularly on cable news in america he was this wonderful antidote to that and and yeah it was hugely respected for it so is there reason to have a lot of hope in our ability as a nation to have quality nuanced national conversations because there is not just the 24-hour news cycle, which is in, in some ways the traditional media doing it for longer. There's, there's a lot of different types of media um, within the market as well. Should that give us hope that we'll have the chance to have conversations about complicated issues rather than three-word slogans about complicated issues? Or does it mean that we'll just get 24 hours of the same stuff? Well, again, I'll, I'll say it. Look, I'm, I'm a... I'm always inclined You're to be positive. I'm, I'm an optimist. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I have good reason to be optimistic and I think that I'm supported by evidence in this in this regard. I'm I'm absolutely optimistic and I think that the thing that's really exciting to me is that a, a lot of people would think that, well, in order for news to be commercially successful, it has to be really dumbed down, tabloid, sensational, whatever sort of term you'd like to apply to it, but, you know, that it can't, it can't be intelligent, basically. It can't be... Um, a sophisticated discussion of politics. But as I said, that it, it feels to me like every other month we've got some new format emerging somewhere in the world which puts, um, turns that myth into a complete lie or, or you know, exposes that as a complete myth. Because there's so many examples where news is commercially successful and is, um, yeah, as I said, treating, treating its audience with respect as though it's having an intelligent conversation with its audience. I want to talk a little bit about the type of person that we find in state and federal politics in Australia. Plato, in his great piece of work, The Republic, through his main character, Socrates, said, in talking about the pursuit of a just city to live in, he said that it will be possible then and only then when kings are philosophers or philosophers are kings. Are our national leaders philosophers? Or are they people pursuing an, an individual career? I, I, I really would have to say that one of the, the, the problems in Australian politics and a problem, problem in politics everywhere really is that too many politicians come from a very narrow range of backgrounds. You know, it's it's often said. You know, you look at the Labor Party, and an overwhelming majority of the well, not, I'm not sure, if, not sure if it's a majority, but it's certainly a very large percentage of the people who are MPs at the federal level in the Labor Party used to work in the the, the union movement. And of course, you know, that's not a surprise given the the historical background of the Labor Party. But if you uh, think about certainly the the massive decline in union union membership over the last twenty to thirty years. That's not a kind of a representative group, if you like, or a group that's 
adequately represent the experiences and backgrounds of the Australian people. The same thing would go with the Liberal Party, an overwhelmingly large number of lawyers. Um, Student politicians. And and student politicians, absolutely right. And political staffers. And and, exactly right. On both sides of politics. There seems to be this sort of standard way of getting into politics, which is, yep, you know, you establish your yourself early on as a, you know, in student politics, or you work for a politician and you're in the background. Um, you know, Kelly O'Dwyer, for example, just some, someone who springs to mind, used to work for Peter Costello and then, you know, ended up then getting pre, pre-selected for a seat, you know. Um, Higgins, I think, is, is um, her, her seat. And... Yeah, I, I think that that is one of one of the real problems. We have a lack of diversity in the what again what we would call the political class. It, it is overwhelmingly white upper class, and yeah, from this very narrow range of backgrounds. The thing that you know, for me, at the last election, we had the election of, and you're going to have to help me, uh, uh, Jackie Lambie. Ricky Muir from the the Motoring Enthusiast Party. Glenn Lazarus. Glenn Lazarus. People were quite scathing of, of these these people, but I, I think it's really exciting because at last there's you know they're, they're truly representative. Well, yeah, and it's well it, the the thing is that we're, you know we're all often talking about how you know politics needs to represent the people, and then when you have people who are a little bit more ordinary for you know that's I don't know if that's being polite or unkind, I don't know, um, but if you, you look at these people are uh, just come from much more ordinary Australian backgrounds, they're not quite as articulate as you know your Malcolm Turnbulls of the world. Um, perhaps, or you know, various other people. But why shouldn't they sit in parliament? Why should we, you know, dump on them for um, you know being a little bit less articulate? And I think the th- the, the thing that I I absolutely loved was um, Ricky Muir. Just I, I believe it was earlier this year. He wrote this fantastic editorial. I can't even remember what it was about, but he wrote this this fantastic piece for the Guardian, um, which was really on point, critical of the government, and it showed like this guy knows what he's doing. He's not he's not some idiot. And look, maybe that was written by one of his staffers. I don't know, but yeah, I, I just find it I find it disappointing when when we finally have some people who are again a, a parliament perhaps that is a slightly ever so slightly more representative of. The Australian public, the people who are aiming to represent, we you know want to make fun of them. I think that's really quite sad. They've done themselves a very positive service, haven't they? Especially two in particular of those that we mentioned, Ricky Muir and, and Glenn Lazarus. They've they were Smokies, really. Ricky Muir in particular was um, was much maligned when he came into Parliament, but he said some things that that have made a lot of sense. Yeah, he- Not sure about all of the, the the votes that he's made in the Senate. I'm, I have no idea. I haven't been following well, it that closely. I'm, I'm really but- good, and, and I just want to quickly give the example of Ricky Muir. You know, he did that that famous interview with 60 Minutes, I believe it was, and he was asked about the separation of powers and he couldn't describe what the separation of powers was. Now, got, again, got him. The, yeah, the political class, the traditional media, we'll, we'll so often go, ha-ha, isn't that proof that he's just an idiot? Whereas actually most of the Australian public are like, well, I don't really know what that's about either. Yeah, again, representative. Um, yeah, and... and, and it's it's kind of you know this is this is what I was saying before about um, so much of journalism assumes a really knowledgeable audience, but in doing so it it puts a lot of people offside. So um, a great one that I, I always love to talk about is so often journalists will talk about what happened in Caucus today. Most people don't know what, know what Caucus, caucus is. is exactly. No, it's like the actual mechanics of how Parliament and and politics work. Most people don't know about, and then to then have this kind of gotcha question about how our political system is organised, he he couldn't answer it. And okay, so 
so what? what? Yeah, yeah, no. Is that is that you know? Could he not find out? And if, if someone explained him to that, he could learn it in two minutes. It's not that big a problem if someone. It in, just you proves know. that he hasn't been in, ensconced in politics. Pre- precisely. Yeah, life. you know, he's not. He's not an insider, and that, that's the thing. I think that, uh, you know, I, I think too much of our political discourse is has this sort of insider rhetoric. But fortunately, I think, as I said, that is changing. We've got more people coming from the outsiders, you know, and, and the, the best illustration I can think of is literally the show called Insiders, right? The show is, is called Insiders, ABC, and it, it's watched by hardly anyone, but people pay so much attention to it. And while it's great, I, I don't, I'm not trying to knock the show. If the people on the show are insiders, that makes us outsiders. We, we at home watching, therefore, aren't even included in the political process, are we? We are, even by the name of the show, we are all immediately framed as the audience as outsiders and then we again we we you know as, as a colleague of mine in the united states guy called jonathan gray um he, you know he makes the point that it's no wonder then that people feel disaffected by politics and yet that they blame satirical shows and and you know these other you know soft news or whatever it might be for alienating audiences to politics but actually it's the in many cases it's the traditional hardcore political news that it's, it's doing that perfectly well is Malcolm Turnbull the circuit breaker Australian politics needed? Is he going to be successful in his role or at least in his role of communicating to the Australian people? Oh. I mean, who knows what will happen politically? Mm. But is he the right person at the right time in Australian politics? So, that's another great question. I I remember back in, it would have been, uh, I, I think it was probably around 2010, 2011. I, I remember thinking at the time, Tony, you're poisoning your own chalice um, because I could see the way in which he was just fostering this a culture of incredible criticism and a, and a, a, a I don't want to sound you know a lot of Americans talk about you know oh let's respect the office of the presidency I'm not trying to be like oh let's respect the office of the prime minister but he was he was really fostering this culture of disrespect to the prime ministership I suppose. Um, the job that he was hoping to have. Exactly, the job he was hoping to have. And then he, you know, to, to use that metaphor, he, you know, he made his own bed and laid in it and it turned out that it wasn't very comfortable. Um, he was doing that. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to know if Malcolm Turnbull is the circuit breaker, but I think that his, his desire to, to yeah, have a, well, he, he talked about, you know, have a conversation with the Australian public and to win them over is a much better approach than, yes. Yeah, and, and he, he had, had it quite right, I think, um, to say it's better than yelling at them or, or lecturing to them. When I think about the workshops I run and the, the people I work with individually and the, the blogs that I write all about leadership, and then I hear that word, starting with L, leadership, the same word, attached to our political leaders, the leader of the opposition, the leader of the, in the parliament, it seems incongruous to me. Mm. There seems to be no link between those two scenarios. What in the business world, in the professional settings, we're asking people to think about in terms of their leadership that we then see from the highest office holders in the country. Am I asking too much of our political leaders to set a good example, to be the highest office holders? No, I I don't think you're asking too much, but it's... I was talking before about you know the Australian public being polled to death. You know, you see there's there's constantly you know uh, opinion polls being published. You have those those are kind of publicly known polls, but you 
every party also does its, a massive amount of its own internal polling. These numbers that never get released, right? And one of the, the things that's interesting is, that, is the way in which that drives political decisions. You know, what, you know, what should we do about this, you know, this policy issue? Well, the public, you know, this is their, their opinion, so let's just kind of follow that. It's, it's, you know, it's well known that in, for example, the lead up to the 2001 federal election, that it was internal polling by the Labor Party, uh, sorry, by the, 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 the um, Liberal Party um, who were in government at the time, the Howard government, uh, their, their polling firm that they employed, Crosby Texter, had found out that there was this kind of underlying unease within the Australian public about um, the issue of, issue of asylum seekers. And when the Tampa, uh, what was it? I think it was around September two thousand and one. It was, if I'm not mistaken, there was it the was. kind of the confluence of the you know nine um, eleven terror attacks and then the Tampa. They jumped on that. They knew, okay, this is our chance to show that we're tough on asylum seekers. And that, that really swung that election massively. And I think that that's a problem because that's not leadership anymore, right? That is just following. following. Exactly. It's, it's, it's actually you're, you're letting the public lead. And, and people would say to that, well, if we just followed what opinion polls said, then we would be bringing back public executions because chances are if you poll people and say, okay, you know, should we be executing criminals? Chances are they would be. But, you know, actually if you think... Well, certainly my opinion is if you think about the, the morality of that situation, there's no conceivable way in which any um, state should ever be involved in killing people. You know, so, so you, can't, you can't be led by opinion polls all the time. The, but my, my favourite example of this was in 2008, you know, the very first thing that the, the Rudd government did in the very first sitting of parliament was it apologised to the Stolen Generations. Now, in 2000, between about, well, the late, latter years of the Howard government, the public opinion around whether there should be a po- an apology was around 70-30 against, right? So about 70, 70% of the public said, no, we shouldn't do that. Around 30% said no. It was well, in, in that sort of ballpark for a long time and it was pretty, pretty well fixed. It wasn't, wasn't deviating too much. Kevin Rudd decided, well, okay, well, whether that's the opinion of the public or not, essentially this is what we think is the right thing to do. And in the process of doing that, he and the government explained why it's necessary. What you know? What was the actual, you know, essentially? What are the 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 things that happened to the stolen generation that was so horrible? It explained that okay, while we are saying sorry, that doesn't suddenly open open us up to litigation, which was one of the arguments that John Howard had used, because there was never any denial of the fact that this had taken place. So it was already a possibility that it had been on the table. After that had happened. The, the opinion swung around. So it was then about 70% in favour and 30% against. That's, that, for me, is just a really good example. of Yes, you can just follow opinion polls endlessly, but when you are able to show genuine leadership, which involves explaining to the public why are we doing this, having a conversation with saying, okay, you may disagree, but this is why. Here are the reasons. Have, you know, support that with a good argument. Um, you can win people around. And, that, and again, I think that is is leadership as opposed to just following. My next question was going to be about exactly that. I was going to ask you, so who were the true leaders in the democratic dynamic within Australia? Is it the politicians? Is it us, the voting public? Or is it the media? I guess you've answered that in, in, in as much as sometimes it's, it's any of those at, at any one time. And, and in some ways, what we're looking for as a nation is, is a political leader who yeah. will act as the leader. Look, I think it still is uh, politicians, ultimately. Of course, the media has a really huge role in how things are treated. But if right now, again, Malcolm Turnbull says something 
he tweets something, he calls a press conference, he makes an announcement about a policy, the the media will pay immediate attention to that. It's not the media aren't necessarily driving. They are they they play a role in in covering politics and holding power to account. But ultimately, yeah, I think it's still political leaders who are in charge. And I think that as I said, the ones the ones that succeed are the ones that that treat their constituents with respect. When Tony Abbott left office, it was um, it was hard to ignore the again the right wing shock jocks as they are you know people whose names we all know they were in a tiz <laughs> and it was suggested that a good part of their anxiety was based on the fact that they no longer had the power in Australian politics that they thought they had yeah absolutely so yeah. There, there's a fair argument to suggest that for a while either conservative media were the leaders in Australian politics or they at least thought they were the leaders in Australian politics yeah well I mean yeah you're, you're absolutely right the there were I mean Andrew Bolt was probably the best well certainly my favorite uh, response you know he he wrote this absolutely lamp this editorial that got absolutely lambasted you know he was talking about his good mate and how the Australian public just didn't treat this poor man with respect and this 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 hilarious kind of um, it's hilarious editorial, and and you, yeah, you're ex- exactly right. It was evidence that said, well, there was a lot of people upset because they probably thought, oh, well, actually, this, you know, Tony Abbott was good mates of ours. Um, you know, he always come in our show, and he was always sympathetic to our causes. And yeah, you know, it was absolutely probably evidence of the fact that they, well, proof that they don't have the sort of power that they, they thought they were players. They, they, absolutely, but there are there are lots of examples of this where people who used to. I mean, I'm thinking in my mind right now of, of Alan Jones, for example. Alan Jones, there was this, he's no longer around. You know, John Laws was the other one who was, you know, the really well-known talkback radio host. Unfortunately, Alan Jones is... Oh, he, he's still around. Yeah, yeah, sure. He's probably getting around in his Rolls Royce somewhere and doing <laughs> some shows somewhere. But, you know, he, he's, he went into semi-retirement, I suppose, a number of years ago. He, the, Paul Keating had this famous phrase, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it, and he said basically, if you educate John Laws, you educate the country, right? You know, that, and it was quite true because he had huge media influence. But the thing is, his audience and the same thing's happening with John, um, Alan Jones's audience and yeah, Ray Hadley's audience, it's, it's actually a very narrow demographic and they're dying off. <laughs> that, that is one of the things that's happening. We, the other thing that, that I'm, I'm thinking of, for example, is the... A massive amount of attention that was used to be paid to the commercial current affairs programs, a current affair in today tonight. They 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 killed their own audience. They killed their own influence by becoming so ludicrous and ridiculous. They they would so often use young people and demonize young people as you know violent thugs and drug dealers and all this sort of stuff. And they're, you know, forever sort of, and, you know, I'm being ex- excessive here, but, you know, they're always sort of proclaiming, you know, the sky's falling in. And then it doesn't. And then people lose trust in them. And, and like I said, that their, their audience just suddenly became so old and constrained. Eventually, you know, Today Tonight, which was this behemoth of current affairs or, or of commercial television, it used to win the ratings every night, just doesn't exist anymore. They, and, and I they think, became train wrecks, didn't they? They, they did. And, and I think a big part of that too was, um, we had people like Andrew Hansen and Chaz Lichardello from The Chaser who would spend every single week highlighting just how ridiculous they were. And and that was a, another big part of it as well. Yeah, if, if you – it keeps coming back to this, this point that I keep on coming back to coincidentally as, as it happens, that if, yeah, if you treat your audience with disrespect, that that might be good in the short term, but as a long-term strategy, it's terrible. One thing that always 
baffles me is in the new media, say even things as unnew as breakfast TV, and I know that you've done a lot of work on Sunrise, and mm. um, and I see a fair bit of the ABC breakfast show. Yeah, it baffles me why they all have segments on what's on the front page of the newspapers. They even do it on the ABC Insiders show. It's almost as if it's keeping alive that old media because they're saying, all right, what's on the front of the Australian and the Korea Mail and the Daily Telegraph keeping their opinions alive? Uh, It's almost as if they're lacking the confidence that they might otherwise have for their own place in the media landscape. Yeah, I mean, I think that the reason why they do that is because we still look to newspapers in a way, not not so much to set the agenda, but just to see, okay, what is is making headlines? You know, we we sort of talk about that quite a lot. But it is a great example of the way in which a lot of, I would say, traditional journalism is just kind of recycling stuff. Oh, you know, this person said this and then it's, so I'm going to you know, respond to it in this way. Um, recycling the same stories or, you know, that you'll see this story is in the news. And, and possibly this is another reason why you see this happening is that very often if a, a journalist or sorry, a politician would like to get a, a story out in the day, they have to plant the story with the journalist so it goes in the morning newspaper and then it'll get picked up by radio stations and therefore they'll be called back to do an interview about it on on that. And then usually that interview on radio is filmed and so then it'll be picked up in the afternoon news and maybe appear in the evening news as well of the reporting on what was said during that interview, which, you know, which is this, 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 kind of really well established cycle of how, how the, you know, the media operates. It's, yeah, again, it's it's problematic. It becomes so um, formulaic in a way that you are, that's that's why I'm I'm really of the belief that this sort of more exciting stuff that's happening in the margins. If you look at if you look at the media as a whole, not just including the old traditional media, but you look at the new media as well. Um, these other new formats that are emerging at the edges. If you look at that as a whole, it's actually doing a really good job of scrutinising political power. If I really crudely categorize some of the media that we've talked about today into conservative and progressive or left and right <laughs> and you think about i i always have a, a big problem oh good that. tell me yeah. about that first well i i I'll just think ask it's, you the question i just think it's really it's 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 too, way too simplistic mm. to categorize you know my, my colleague brian mcnair and i'm going to misquote him so i apologize brian if you're listening to this he, he talks about how, you know, claims of bias are usually subjective claims made by the person reading, let's say, the journalist's copy, where they're transposing their own bias onto the presumed bias of the journalist. And it's this complete mess. And, and people can find bias in everything. And, and people will often look for what they, are, you know, will find what they're looking for. And, and it's, which is not to say that there aren't, I, I suppose, ideological tendencies in certain media. That's, that's fairly well established. But this, it's also quite well known that this idea that, oh, we're, we're covering, you know, let's say someone at the, the Australian, let's say, you know, it's often claimed to be a right-wing newspaper. The idea that someone will sort of tap that journalist on the shoulder and say, no, 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 you can't say anything positive about this politician is, is a myth. I, I've, I've, th- that idea is, is kind of a bit crazy. I'm not su- suggesting that they don't, for example, employ columnists or um, journalists who might have more right-leaning tendencies or, you know, for, for, for that matter, you know, people at the Sydney Morning Herald might be a little bit more on the left. Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a dangerous game, especially when the differences are so minor. You're absolutely right. And um, someone like Daniel Kahneman has, in his book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, 
has made it so clear and apparent to us how we can all hear and read the same information and make what we will of it, depending on the bias that we Absolutely. already have. Yep. And that's a very good point. And you, you pulled me up there being abrupt, but I'm, I'm going to plow on with a question anyway that's because right, I ahead. like yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. and, uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll change it to – and we do have media that, that have clear ideological leanings. And if you think about their leanings left or right or conservative or progressive – is it fair to observe that those that lean conservative or to the right can be typified as being yelly and ranty and, and angry type media, where those like the Chasers War on Everything or something like Jon Stewart is trying to be satirical or humorous or accessible? I can't think of anything on the right that, that falls into that format. Yeah, no, well, you're right in saying that. I, I, I would definitely agree. And there's actually some studies that have been done which have shown that, well, you know, and, and, and people have noted that a lot of political satire comes from people who would describe themselves as progressives or leftists. And the argument goes that the reason for that is probably because, and, and some studies have been done which actually show that there are some biological differences, well, you know, the, um, the way in which people process information psychologically is different for people who, have, who lean towards the left and, and lean right. That, yeah, the, the people who are on the right tend to be kind of more afraid of, of um, change and, and are more reactionary. But it, it's been pointed out that the reason why satire lends itself to, um, I guess you would say people who call themselves progressives is because people who are on the right are more um, have more faith and have more trust in institutions. And the idea of mocking people and institutions and, you know, established offices like the that. presidency or the prime ministership, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, exactly. It, it grates against that. I think one of the things, though, when it, again, when it comes to claims of bias, the other reason why I'm, I'm reluctant to do that is because Claims of bias are usually made to discredit journalists. Right? They're usually like, well, that we shouldn't listen to this person because they happen to, you know, oh, of course they're a right winger, so we shouldn't listen to a word that they say, or oh, we shouldn't listen to this person because you know it's just a lefty media bias. The problem is that actually stops us from listening to the argument in the first place. We're actually dismissive of people immediately because we think, well, they can't possibly have anything interesting to say because their views don't accord with mine. Um, it that, keeps that's us a at problem. a rhetorical lesson, level rather than a true discussion, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and, and I think I, I, I personally don't I, I don't mind bias, whatever you want to call it. You know, if people, if a, if a journalist tends to vote Green or Labor or for Liberal or National Party, I don't really care. It doesn't really matter that much what their, their personal opinions are or, you know, if, if I'm, if, I'm engaging with an argument. I, I want to engage with the argument, not necessarily the person who's who's making it. And I think, yeah, very often in getting kind of caught up in if this is this person a lefty or a conservative, whatever it might be, yeah, it, it, it just blinds us to the actual quality or the content of their, their argument rather than, yeah. Well, it, it blinds us to that, yeah. So last couple of questions. What's the future of the relationship between the voting public the media and and our political class. Mm. I think the one of the, one of the really big things that we're seeing is the media now aren't so much about reporting what events are happening; they're about interpreting events. Because I can find out now what's going on directly from politicians. Right? I don't I don't need journalists as intermediaries. Interpreting it. Yeah. Um, so you've got this process of disintermediation on the one hand, which is again a fancy academic word for basically saying you get. You get your information straight directly. From the yeah, mouth. straight from the horse's mouth. You know, there was always, there's always been a media 
mediated, well, politics has always been mediated to some degree, unless you're sitting every day in Parliament House following, you know, turning up at your, uh, you know, elected official's door every day at, at their electoral electorate office, uh, finding out what's going on, having that personal conversation. You always find out about what's going on in politics, you know, in a mediated way. But it's uh, it's not getting mediated by journalists so much anymore. And so the role of journalism is changing. It, it It's now much more about interpreting things and explaining events, trying to sift through the quantity of information that's available to ordinary citizens and to try and bit more, try to be a bit more um, discerning and interpretive in terms of what's... Giving us some context. Yeah, giving context, giving us some background, actually saying, okay, well, if this was the decision that was just made by this government um, or, you know, the opposition, whatever it might be, what, why would they be doing that? What, what, are, what is the strategy at play here? What are they trying to do? What are, you know, what are the internal politics that, that they're trying to deal with, etc.? It now goes to that sort of level. I think that in terms of the relationship between politics, more, more broadly, or political actors and citizens and ordinary people, I think, I think it's a more kind of a direct one. I mean, another, another example to, to think about in terms of the media would be something like Q&A. Right, Q and A is a great a great example of a chance for ordinary people to sit down in in, in a studio or, or tweet along at home and have that direct engagement with citizens. I think that's a that, that as a format is is really fascinating. It's attracted lots of controversy, of course, but I think yeah, what we're going to probably see more of is that that direct engagement with and with any luck that that direct engagement is going to be a little bit more sophisticated than it has been. This has been a fantastic chat, Stephen. I've really appreciated your insight. Thus ends the end of our, our political discussion, but you're not off the hook yet. I've got uh, four more questions for you. Okay, I've, cool. I know you've um, listened to a couple of the podcasts. Not sure if you got this far. I always finish by asking my guests the same four questions. Great. Okay. Far away. All right. Tell me about the Saturday night that you most look forward to. An intimate dinner with your closest friends or a big party with a whole bunch of people you know? Um, I'd always go to an intimate dinner with closest friends. I stopped going to nightclubs when I was probably 19. I, I just I just realized how much I didn't enjoy that experience because usually I like talking to people and not sort of having the thumping music in the background. I, I would rather have an intimate dinner and a kind of a long conversation with a few people rather than sporadic, shallow conversation with a lot of people. What about the way you, you take in information? Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or be caught daydreaming um caught daydreaming uh i i it's it's maybe sort of counterintuitive as an academic to say i don't get bogged down in detail uh, i mean i like detail but i i i don't like kind of getting too caught up in it i like i, I don't want to say simplifying things but i like to understand things in more kind of clear terms rather than yeah, getting getting caught up in unnecessary detail what about your decision making process are you a slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on emotion? I like to make decisions based on rational thought. I do, th I do think about things a lot. One of the things that I've found in recent years is that I do spend more time being more analytical and, and self-critical, I suppose, as well, and understanding, particularly in, in, at a professional level, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And I think that that's, that's probably one of my strengths is not getting too, too emotional about things. I am able to remain fairly level-headed. And very last question, you're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan ahead, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going or do you just get in the car and drive? Ooh, a bit of both actually. That's not, that's not a very good answer. Um, 
I I like having a plan, but a plan that has lots of free space in it um, for just see what happens. Fantastic. Stephen, thank you so much. My itch feels partially scratched at <laughs> least. You're a fountain of knowledge and, and it's so nice to hear a, a philosopher speak so directly about the things that interest us. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thanks for having me. What a treat to have someone of Stephen's academic pedigree on the show. I admire the calm and thoughtful way he engages in such a complex and emotive issue. Chatting with Stephen helped me make sense of what I've been watching over the past few years. It helped me understand the role of our ever-changing media and the information ecosystem that is having such a profound effect on the dynamic that exists between the voting public and the leaders we elect. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from the podcast, as well as a link to Dr. Stephen Harrington's book on news and media. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.